0: What we are trying to do is to make sure that this idea, that always we talk about the need of flexible, relevant, adaptable education, and global minded, but locally uh, responsible education is not just a concept, but is a reality. Uh, You know, I'm committed to um, in, in my work, which is always exciting and very interesting.
1: If you're like many around the world, your eyes and ears are probably tuned to the small nation of Qatar where the 2022 World Cup is currently taking place. Welcome back to the 27th episode of the WorldWise podcast to join me, your host, Rajika Bhandari, to take a global journey that spans Mexico, the US, India, and ends in Doha in Qatar. And no, we're not going to talk about soccer. We're going to talk about my guest's fascinating educational and professional journey that has spanned the world, making him a true international higher education expert. So drum roll please, as I welcome Francisco Marmolejo to the show. I have known Francisco for as long as I've been in this field. And his career has taken him from leading a higher education association to heading the World Bank's higher education work around the world and to now being the president of higher education at the Qatar Foundation in Doha. In this wide ranging conversation, Francisco and I chat about his early origins in Mexico, his deeply nuanced understanding of global education issues, Qatar's innovative and ambitious higher education goals, and last but not the least, our mutual love for each other's country of origin, India and Mexico. Take a listen. Welcome to the show, Francisco. It's such a delight and honor to have you with me here today.
0: It's a pleasure being with you, Rajika.
1: Thank you. Now, you know, let's, I want to jump right into the conversation. And uh, you're someone whose work has spanned so many different sectors. You've uh, worked for a university. You've led a higher education association. You've worked for one of the world's largest multilateral organizations, um, the World Bank. And you're now heading the higher education portfolio for a large funder and implementer of educational initiatives, the Qatar Foundation in Doha, which is where you're based as we have this conversation today. So I'm curious that with these range of different experiences through your career, how have these different um, experiences added to your understanding of higher education issues?
0: Oh well you know that's a good question. Uh, Probably I can say that the more I know about education and higher education the less I know about it and uh, (laughs) so probably all these uh, great opportunities that I have had in my life to analyze and to see and to work and intervene in higher education from different angles, uh, you know, have given me the the I think the most important lesson, which is the fact that higher education is a, such a complex sector with a variety of variations that uh, what it may work in one place may not work in other place that the significant diversification, diversity differences between higher education systems and institutions um, give us probably the best basis to recognize that uh, context matters uh, when Mm -hmm. we are uh, working and and analyzing uh, higher education. So again, you know, this great experience in terms of time for me uh, has given me probably a sense of uh, um humility uh, to recognize that i just know a little bit very little about the higher education sector
1: well you you know a lot so i wouldn't say that but i think you make um you make two really important points right that um context matters i think that is so critical and uh, one realizes that when one really leaves home and you've certainly lived and worked in different parts of the world and I think it's, uh, you know, one can fall into this trap of really letting, allowing Western paradigms and theories and notions of higher education and models of higher education, I should say, to really dominate. But you're absolutely right that um, it, the the context is really critical because we can't yeah. simply take what's what works in one, one country <laughs> and just transplant it in uh, in another. Well, you so, know, a, a good example
0: um, of that, uh, Rajika, is... Uh, when we make this very simplistic uh, uh, separation or dichotomy between public and private universities.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, it's a
0: very good example of that. Well, you know, public and private means something completely different from one country to another. And uh, so you might find countries in which a private institution as such could be seen as a completely public university in another context, or in which, for instance, you might think that the way to differentiate the public versus private is the sources of funding and uh, so you might find countries in which private universities are funded by the public while public universities are not so you know this is just one example of what you describe that uh, the context that again context matters but also of course there are significant uh, variations on the same framework that sometimes we are trying to use to understand a a higher education sector in a place in which is completely different.
1: Absolutely. And terminology also matters, right? From (laughs) (laughs) higher education to post-secondary to tertiary education, (laughs) as it's known within the development sector and certainly the World Bank, uh, where you were for several years. So um, I want to go back to sort of where you began and uh, you received, I believe, all of your formal education in Mexico. It is correct. So... That's correct, right? So given this vast global career that you've had, um, I'm really curious about what was your first international educational or professional experience that was sort of global in nature? And I'm really curious how someone who started out with a background, if I'm not mistaken, in agriculture and agri-business, found their way into international <laughs> higher education. So I'm very interested in, in that transition.
0: Well, the, the, I will start with the second question. You know, I'm mm-hmm. a true believer and, uh, on, the, uh, on the shifting nature of professions. And, uh, and the fact that whatever you learn in life, you never know that eventually it's going to be useful for something that is unrelated to what you do. I'm a firm believer as well that um, this idea that you go to the university to prepare for one profession and that if you for, for some reason transition out of that, you might be seen as a failure or someone who was uh, you know, unable to succeed on the field. I, I think those are very old conceptions of the idea of the university as the institution that is preparing personas. And uh, uh, in my opinion, the more a university makes sure that students are preparing to have curiosity to learn for the rest of their life, the more the university is going to be really responding uh, to the complexities and uncertainties of a world which is shifting constantly. Uh, Our universities tend to prepare people for the past while I think they should prepare people for the future. So that's my first response uh, on the second question. Uh, On on the first one, you know, interestingly, uh, Rajika, I, uh, you know, I did my studies in Mexico. I I come from a rural town, Ojuelos. I uh, Mm -hmm. always say that for me being international meant traveling from the town to the city uh, because for me was precisely getting out of the the understanding of the world that I had. But in terms of international education by uh, our engagement as such, in one of my different activities. I was a uh, a, uh, a faculty member and administrator at a private university in Mexico. And then I had the privilege of hosting, um, a visiting faculty members from uh, another university, in this case, the University of Arizona in the United mm-hmm. States. At that time, I didn't speak English. Still, I don't. I uh, just sort of managed to communicate in English with a very strong accent. But at that time, I remember that the counterpart that I was dealing with is someone who spoke Spanish like myself, so that made me very comfortable to talk to him and then to start exploring potential collaboration, etc. And then that basically forced me, if you want, to go beyond the conventional, to push myself to go and visit that university. Going there, I remember well that even I got sick because I knew that I was going to a place in which most likely Nobody will be able to understand me uh, because I didn't speak English. But again, I push myself to do that in order to really start uh, getting into a next level, if you want, of uh, the engagement in international education. And that was the beginning of my journey on international education, a journey that I started 35 years ago, I might say, and that, of course, it never ends
1: that is such an amazing and inspiring story and francisco you have had so much impact in our field and you have uh, such a larger than life persona and through your work that it's it's hard to believe um you know uh, that that uh, your beginnings were simple and how you how you actually came into the field so that is a that is a beautiful, beautiful story. And is is this experience what eventually led you to be, become the founding um, leader and executive director of CONAHEC, which stands for the Consortium for North American Higher Education Collaboration?
0: This, uh, this and another one, you know, uh, mm-hmm. as part of that experience, I had the privilege of meeting um, a colleague at an international conference happening in Mexico. And uh, that colleague was sitting one side of me when we were on our way to the conference and she was a little bit nervous because she was going to make a speech in Spanish and she didn't speak Spanish well. So we start chatting and then she says, you know, I'm going to I'm going to make my speech in English, in Spanish. So I wonder if I'm pronouncing this properly. So I gave her some suggestions, don't say this, say that differently, et cetera, et cetera. And then later during the conference, she says, you know, there is a program in the United States aimed at preparing leaders of higher education, uh, which is the ACE Fellows Program. Uh, why don't you participate on that? Why don't you, uh, um, you know, apply to participate on that? So I follow her suggestion. I, I did. Then I was lucky to be accepted as an ACE Fellow. In fact, I was privileged to be the first Mexican in this program. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking about 30 years ago or more and um, and then um, when I was doing my fellowship and in the middle of my fellowship I'd lost my job in Mexico. So I needed oh. to find a job and then suddenly there was an offering from the University of Arizona to go there and handle a small project with limited funding for six months to engage in collaboration uh, uh, between Mexican and American universities and I was very excited I I want to participate in this six months project while I find a job in Mexico in order to return to my activities in higher education in Mexico. And that six months project resulted in a, a great adventure of uh, setting up not a binational, but a trinational consortium of universities, which is CONAHEG, which still is being hosted by the University of Arizona. Mm-hmm. And that uh, it is you know, a large network of colleges and universities, not only from Canada, the US and Mexico, but now uh, also many more countries. So again, it is just a matter of finding ways to adapt yourself and to uh, understand the momentum and the place in which you are. And of course, trying to be innovative in resolving or contributing to resolve the needs of such a fascinating field as international education
1: absolutely but it's also that that one particular door opening at the right time right and uh, leading to the door through.
0: closing and the door opening
1: <laughs> exactly exactly but then really sort of having such an impact because you never really look back and just went on to um to build upon that experience now um i want to talk about india and uh You know, there are a few different dimensions uh, to what I want to talk about. But as part of your World Bank role, where you were the head of tertiary education at the World Bank, you moved to India for quite some years and you were based in India. And, you know, I bring this up because I have traveled to your country of origin, Mexico, several times And I will always say this to people, and you know, I consider myself fairly well traveled that no matter where I go in the world, Mexico is very special to me. There's just something about it. Every time I have been to Mexico, I have felt that I'm in a country that's very familiar, even though I have no Mexican origins and I don't speak a word of Spanish. So I just keep my mouth shut, but I somehow get by. And funnily enough, I'm often mistaken for being Mexican. And I say all of this um, and I've been interested in this, that what is this affinity between Mexico and India? And, you know, I went back and read, you um, Octavio Paz's book, In the Light of India. Now, he was, of course, a very prolific Mexican writer who many years ago was the ambassador to India. That's correct. And was so um, inspired by the country and felt this deep connection that inspired him to sort of reflect in this book uh, and in other ways on sort of the connections between the two countries. So, what I'm uh, all of this is to sort of ask you the question. What was your experience like as a Mexican being in India for several years? You were, you were based in, in in Delhi, right?
0: Well, you know, I, I think it has been one of the most exciting, fascinating uh, um, learning uh, um, experiences that I have had in my life. Uh, on one way, uh, I felt when I was in India that I was at home. Always yes. I have felt that, you know, whatever place I live for me is home. And in India, that transition was relatively easy, I might say. I just to joke by saying that both Indians and Mexicans come from the same planet. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, we, we have many um, very positive uh, affinities. We have many negative affinities as well. Uh, some of the imperfections of our societies are very similar in both countries you find uh, a society which is strongly family-oriented, strongly uh, value-oriented, at the same time with a unique capacity to uh, uh, improvise, to uh, get over the adversity, uh, to to be able to find innovative ways uh, to address issues that are in front of you with a lot of desire to have a better life for them and their families. And, uh, and with a significant diversity inside the country. So even though Mexico, in comparison to India, is a relatively small country representing only 10% of the population of India, uh, at the same time, uh, it is a country that has also a you know very unique set of different regions that make of Mexico many Mexicos, and the same I find in India, there is, an, in, in, you know, Dave. India is many Indias at the same time because in each of mm-hmm. the places you find, uh, you know, significant differences. And that's what make our cultures and our history very rich, very enriching, and also very stimulating. Now, my experience in India, of course, was overwhelming in many ways because, um, you know, being there, I remember many times telling I come from Mexico. And then, of course, a lot of people in, in India were telling me, where is Mexico or what is Mexico? <laughs> and, uh, and I used to say, for instance, I come from a small country because I knew that I would be in states in which the population of Mexico will represent a half of the population of that particular state. And, uh, and uh, but at the same time, when you go to Mexico and then you ask or make comments about India, you find also a lot of uh, very limited knowledge if you want about what is and what is not. India. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it has been a fascinating experience. We should keep in mind that India very soon will be the largest, uh, will have the largest system of higher education in the world. It is the one that is growing more, uh, you know, mar- much more rapidly. It has a lot of challenges ahead uh, and similar to, again, at our level, the challenges in Mexico and in Latin America. and uh, And at the same time, that level of complexity of the system of higher education in India is something that we should understand, that we should live on in order to make sure that um, we are able to capitalize in any collaboration that exists with, uh, with the Indian system of higher education. I have my best friends in India. I keep in touch with them and always are, are, I am anxious of uh, having the opportunity uh, to be back in the country and to see the fascinating process that is being experienced right now.
1: Yes, and I'm so glad you also brought up the point about um, the growth of the Indian higher education system, which uh, I'm sure has also been true uh, for Mexico. And, you know, I think one of the unique perspectives that you bring is as someone who's sort of originally from the global south, although I will say that You know, we have so many different classifications in the world, and some might argue that Mexico is not part of the Global South, or it's not a developing country. In other sort of classifications, it is a developing country. But in any event, you know, as you laid out, you know, there's so many similarities, and I think that's given you such a unique perspective on sort of what are some of the challenges for um for global south countries when it comes to um to higher education. But but I should ask you, what are your thoughts on where Mexico sits on that dimension? Is it is it a developing country? Is it a uh you know still is it developed or
0: oh I think it is a developing country for sure. You know, even though mm-hmm. the definition of developing and developed is uh, highly debatable, as you know. Yes. But of yes. course, it is a country that has um, still today, uh, even though significant uh, growth in uh, the last, uh, you know, three decades. At the same time, it is a country in which you find uh, significant disparities in 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 overall development. You know, mm-hmm. the best way that I have to describe this is that, for instance, in higher education, you have, you know. The, the two top um, you know deciles of um, the the uh the population in terms of income who have access to higher education at a similar level as south korea or canada mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which are the countries with the largest access to higher education but then you have in the lower um, uh, you know decile uh, the two lower deciles you have an access rate equivalent to malawi so you have many mexicos and you have portion of Mexico, which is quite large, for which education and higher education continues being uh, out of reach and for which, unfortunately, the opportunities for further development of themselves and their families are very limited. So on that regard, of course, it is a country that still has a long road to be considered a uh, a high income economy and, and or a developed economy.
1: Absolutely um you know to go back to some of the observations you were making about india and mexico there was one that as i was sort of thinking about your wonderful list uh, there um i was reflecting on something that i think is actually a big difference when i've traveled every time i've traveled in mexico i have been amazed at the level of commitment to preserving the arts and culture and mexican heritage and I would look around me and say, oh, my goodness, why can India not do the same? And <laughs> so I think that is one key difference when I've been to you know, places like uh, Guadalajara, or of course, um, Mexico City, uh-huh. and just seeing the preservation of the arts and the pride taken in arts and culture was, uh, was really moving for me.
0: Your comment. Um, so is very kind.
1: <laughs> sorry. Yes. No. I. I think it's. A, it's a big difference, and I think one of the challenges we have in India is that it's such an. It has the privilege of having this ancient history and culture, but a lot of it is in ruin. It's just not being preserved um, the sure. way the way it needs to be, and that obviously requires investments. So. There is also another Francisco Marmolejo, who has been, I believe, a researcher at Oxford and is now at Harvard, and he somehow bears a striking resemblance to you. So (laughs) do you want to tell me more about him and about the story of international education in your own family?
0: Well, you know, uh, you know, uh, we have my wife and I, Olivia and I have uh, three kids and uh you know of course they grew up in this environment in which they will hearing all the time about the importance of higher education the importance of international education my kids joke all the time that every time that they introduce me a friend a classmate uh, the first thing that i will ask them it was not what is your name but what are you planning to study or where are you studying <laughs> or what are your plans for college or you know that type of thing so they always been, were making fun of, uh, of me on that particular uh, regard and yeah my my uh, you know my, our three kids uh, have been privileged to uh, to work and and to live in different countries and uh, uh, both as a family as well as uh, firm believers of the importance of international education and doing the study abroad uh, Francisco is the oldest one, uh, Francisco Jr. And uh, so he, as you say, he pursued her, his studies in, uh, in the U.S. but uh, he had also, as a study abroad student, he was in Turkey. And then mm-hmm. when he finished college, he decided to move to India. While he was a student, he, uh, uh, he learned to speak Hindi because one of his cl- roommates uh, is from India and uh, he was excited about the the learning of the language and Bollywood and anything else that has to do with India. He finished his studies, moves to India, works there for three years, then he uh, goes to Oxford for his master's and doctorate degrees, and now he's working at Harvard University. He married to, um, you know, uh, Rhea from, uh, from India, and they are a true international family. But the same with my old kids, you know, Jose, spending time in Africa and then Jose and Juanito spending time in India and uh, and now working on their respective fields in geology and uh, in biology and music. So, you know, we are very lucky to have a truly uh, international-minded, if you want, global-minded family, but also with very strong roots in our in our origins in, in Mexico. Uh, my kids uh, when they were kids, uh, when they were younger, we used to go to Mexico for the summertime. And uh, I think uh, we were able to enroll them still in school because the dissonance between the academic calendars of the United States and Mexico. So they hated that uh, they were on vacation and that we were enrolling them in school at least for a month. But that's where they were able to keep and to understand a little bit more the Mexican way of being and also, of course, the language and they both the formal language, but also the slang language. And uh, so now they, uh, after many years, they value the fact that they are able to be fully bilingual and that they can uh, continue working and, and recognizing that the world is both large at the same time, very small. So we are lucky as a family to, to, uh, to live the international dimension in, in our day-to-day life.
1: Yes, that's, uh, that sounds just wonderful, but you're so right about how that global mindset is set in motion and developed so early, and it takes those early experiences. And, you know, we've seen that in all of the U.S. study abroad research as well, that it takes that one experience yeah. to initially go abroad, to be exposed to something different, And that that can really, you know, spark a lifetime of then, uh, you know, building a life that's very global in nature. And I think your family's uh, story sort of really um, brings that to light. But I think it also requires intentionality the way, you know, you describe taking them back uh, every summer, making sure they, you know, the household was infused with the language and culture. And and I say all of that knowing this, because my daughter is of course much younger to your children. She um, is still a middle schooler, but I find myself having to make those choices every single day. And you're right, that based on what I do as well, higher education and global higher education is a constant topic of uh, of conversation at, uh, at our uh, dinner table. So, you know, hopefully all of this has a longer term impact as well. I'm
0: sure it will. I'm sure it will. I can tell you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, as we get towards the end of our conversation, I do want to bring it back to your current work. At the Qatar Foundation, and would love to hear about a few key areas that you are fo- very focused on right now in uh, in your work with the foundation.
0: Yeah, you know, Qatar Foundation is a very unique uh, ecosystem of innovation uh, that uh, I don't think it has any parallel in any part of the world. Um, it is an umbrella of more than fifty different organizations. Uh, schools from kindergarten to doctoral education, Um, entities aimed at innovation such as the Science and Technology Park, the National uh, Research Fund, the National Library, um, the Equestrian Club, uh, now the stadium for the World Cup, you name it. It is a combination of many organizations that apparently may have nothing to do, um, you know, together, but they have a lot to do together in terms of spurring innovation and disruption. It is the great investment of Qatar for the transition from an oil and gas economy and society towards a a knowledge-based economy and society, but also with significant ramifications, uh, not only in Qatar, but also in the region and also in the rest of the world. So the the specific work that uh, I do at Qatar Foundation has to do with a portion of the ecosystem that brings together eight different universities, six of them from the United States with a campus in Qatar, one from France, and also our home-ground university, which is Hamad bin Khalifa University. So each of those universities brings something to the table. One is specializing in engineering, such as Texas A&M, another one in uh, diplomacy and government, such as Georgetown University, Another one in journalism, such as Northwestern University or Medicine, Cornell, or um, a um, a business and uh, computer sciences, such as Carnegie Mellon. So each of them brings together something else, you know, Virginia Commonwealth Universities with the Program of Arts, uh, HSA Paris uh, with a business uh, MBA program. And so what, what we are doing at Qatar Foundation is that even though we have students in very different institutions. For them, it is one campus with the possibility of taking classes and courses and learning from faculty members and from peers from any of the other universities. So what we are focusing our work is making sure that this, what we refer to as a multiversity, becomes a true uh, multiversity, in which students Mm -hmm. have a flexible opportunity to learn about life and work, where students receive preparation, not only in the profession, but also as personas, as uh, agents of change of society, in which we accept and we have students from more than 100 countries, making of our place a very unique laboratory of social, uh, global uh, understanding and and work, and also allowing for our students, as I mentioned to you, taking courses from any of the other institutions, not only in their own academic programs, but also on a variety of joint academics, joint majors, um, joint joint minors, et cetera, et cetera. In summary, what we are trying to do is to make sure that this idea that always we talk about the need of flexible, relevant, adaptable education and global minded, but locally uh, responsible education is not just a concept, but is a reality. And that's what basically Uh, you know, I'm committed to um, in in my work, which is always exciting and very interesting here at Qatar Foundation.
1: Well, it's very true. I think for the past several years, the world has been watching with great interest as uh, the nation of Qatar has made very clear investments in education um, and, you know, as Also seen in its annual WISE convening, which of course has uh, very quickly grown to be regarded as one of the most innovative and thought-provoking convenings in the world around education and certainly all the work that you are spearheading now so Francisco anytime I have someone like you on the show I with, with so much in-depth experience I never want to lose the opportunity to ask you for your pearls of wisdom on what is your advice for the next generation of professionals in uh, international higher education
0: well you know it's it's hard to respond that uh, but I uh... Probably the best person that can give advice is someone like you who also has a significant um, experience in uh, in the and f- uh, recognition and respect in the field of uh, of uh, international uh, higher education i have learned a lot from you rajika so my humble contribution to that is that uh, uh, you know is that you know the 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 grad, the, the, uh, the, the next generation of international educators our people working on the international education field should uh, be prepared for the uncertainty, be prepared mm-hmm. in terms of the right tools that need to uh, need to have, uh, you know, in uh, learning new techniques, new connections, new uh, ways to uh, capitalize on uh, uh, technological developments and, uh, and also opportunities being opened um, uh, by the transitioning of the geopolitical world in which we live. Uh, but more important, I believe, is that uh, my recommendation is uh, to enjoy the journey, um, mm-hmm. to find the passion, to reinforce on a single day the um, they belief that what uh, they are doing is going to be contributing to a better world, and uh, uh, that is going to be transforming the lives of those who are able to participate in international education and to go beyond the boundaries, not to confine the work of international education to the traditional idea that it only happens uh, in mobility of students. Because at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, when we do that, we are neglecting that the overwhelming majority of the students don't and won't enjoy the student mobility experience. So our responsibility should be for the overall body of our um, student population in our higher education institutions. So that requires to be innovative, creative, to be uh, a risk taker and to be prepared Mm -hmm. again for the uncertainty, not in terms of reducing the anxiety, but more in terms of taking that as an opportunity to create something new. And um, so that's... You know, there is not too much I can say, Um, but um, in summary, enjoying the journey.
1: I think that's wonderful, wonderful advice, uh, Francesco. And uh, I want to thank you for joining me today. I know how busy you are in Doha. So I really appreciate your having taken time out to come on the show today and uh, share both your personal and professional journey. So thank you so very much. The
0: pleasure is mine. I, I, I really have enjoyed the, the conversation. Rajika, congratulations for Uh, making available this uh, podcast to the community for all of us to learn about uh, the importance of international education.
1: Thank you, Francisco. You just heard an episode of the EDUP WorldWise podcast, where we explore the intersections of education, culture and migration. I'm your host, Rajika Bhandari. As always, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do love this show, then please do me a favor. Please recommend it to at least five friends. And if you enjoy the types of things we talk about on this show, don't forget to grab a copy of my book, America Calling a Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility. With the holidays just around the corner, you could always consider grabbing a copy for your friends, family and co-workers. Thanks as always for listening. I will be back next week with another episode on how education opens our hearts and minds to the world.